seats. If you notice, uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and we loosely follow the liturgical calendar. And um, yeah, we are here just to uh, celebrate and announce and live in the good of uh, the reign of King Jesus. And we get to celebrate that all month until the end of the year. And it's it's a wonderful time to be able to reflect on that. Um, this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can find one somewhere near you on the floor. Uh, and the page number is page 573. 573. So, I don't know if you're like me, but I noticed something maybe come to the forefront of the holiday season this year that I haven't really noticed in years past, but I don't know if you recognize, but um, at least if you're on social media on any shape or form or fashion, you'll notice there's a, a real tension between like people that like to decorate early for Christmas, right? Yeah? How many of you are in that camp, right? All right, cool. And then the rest of the Grinches in here, right? Right, you have to wait until the day after Thanksgiving. And so I, th- I thought it would be fun to kind of see how this tension plays out. Um, that's what it's like at my house, right? Um, and then the, the more reflective, Andy Dwyer, he said, I'd like to start decorating for Christmas, but at this early point, I'm too afraid to ask. So I think that's how most people feel, like they would like to decorate earlier. Then the philosophical Morpheus, what if I told you that Christmas decorations for sale in early November doesn't actually negatively impact anything. So that's, that's the one camp. And then you have the more militant group, right? Um, yeah. And then we'll have the next one. Yeah. That get a little bit more in your face. Yeah. And then finally the logical it's Christmas time, false it's November. So that's Dwight Schrute. Right. But I mean, there is like there's this disparity. There's this tension between people that want to decorate early and enter into the season. And there is this uh, other group that wants to keep that a little bit more separate. But the good news for us all is the time is here to celebrate the time um, for us. We, we are always living in the good of the fact that God came in the flesh, that he dwelt among us and that he took our place for our sins. And so, um, but Advent, like at its core, there is a tension, just like the tension between people that like to decorate early and people that don't. There's a tension between longing and waiting and expectation, what you want to experience, and then being satisfied. I mean, Advent holds in tension the idea of darkness and brokenness and sin and suffering and light and hope and joy and peace. And so um, to have a real picture of what God wants to accomplish uh, among us, we have to hold all of those things in tension. And um, one thing, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't like to admit very often, but the holidays can be a very disappointing season for us, right? I mean, we come in with sky high expectations of having time off from work and our normal schedules and being with family and friends. But oftentimes those things tend to just highlight the brokenness that exists in our families, in our world, right? So we are a people that need hope. We are a people that need good news. Paul Tripp helps us 
to prepare our hearts for the Advent season with this quote. He says, Perhaps one of the dirty secrets of the church is how much we do out of fear and not faith. We permit ourselves to feel small, unable, alone, unprepared, and bereft of resources. We tell ourselves that what we're facing is too big and requires too much of us. We stand at the bottom of the mountains of trouble and give up before we've taken the first step of the climb. We wait for hope to come in some noticeable, seeable way, but when it never seems to arrive, we pray, but it doesn't seem to do any good. We want to believe that God is there and He really does care, but it seems that we've been left to ourselves. With each passing day, it seems harder to have hope for our marriages, for our children, for our churches, for our friendships, or just for the ability to survive all the trouble with our faith and sanity intact. We wonder, where is hope to be found? We fail to understand that we don't have a hope problem, we have a sight problem. Hope has come. What you say? Where? Hope isn't a thing. Hope isn't a set of circumstances. Hope isn't the first set of ideas. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. And so the reason that the church built Advent into the calendar is because we're forgetful people, right? We built this into the church calendar because it takes a long time to remember and reflect and to place our hope firmly on the hope that has come. And that's what this series is about. It's not about teaching us something that's new, but it is about adjusting our sight and adjusting our faith so that we live in good of the King that has come. And so we're going to begin this series with Isaiah chapter 9. So we're going to read the first seven verses this morning. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we look at God's Word? This is His infallible, inerrant word. These are the most important words that will be spoken here this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, so much now we want to live in the good of these words. But it is natural for us as people and as creatures to be distracted, to be disoriented after a week of celebration. I pray that you would recalibrate our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus. I pray that you would do real ministry in these moments. Father, I thank you that you're not in the business of wasting our time, but you um, are in the business of progressively bringing us under the rule and reign of King Jesus and the peace that he affords us. I thank you for the peace that's already been spoken in this room over your people this morning, and I pray that your peace would continue to reign in our hearts for the fame and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah chapter 9, I mean, you probably might see this verse on a Christmas card. Um, And what I love about Isaiah chapter 9, and really the whole book of Isaiah, is the way that he communicates. I mean, these seven verses are compact. I mean, they really represent about 700 years of human history. So um, sometimes when we read like Old Testament prophets, we get a little bit intimidated and don't understand what they're saying. Um, But this is more like a Twitter message, right? So it's compact, like it's small, like it's supposed to give us the highlights so that we understand. And, and, and if you notice anything in this passage, you'll see those parallels between light and darkness, between gloom and anguish. And all of that, beyond all of those things, the overarching message is that hope has come. That God, um, that the darkness is very real, but the reality is the darkness will not overcome the light, but the light will invade the darkness. And that is our hope as Christians this morning, is that this passage come 700 years before the birth of Jesus, but we look back on a Savior that has come and hope has come to the world. And there is no more important message that we can remind ourselves of in this Advent season that hope has come. This gives us a picture of darkness that is real, right? And there's there's a couple ways we can go with this. Um, Hope is supposed to be real, It's supposed to be personal. It's supposed to be specific. So my prayer this morning is that that hope would come not just to your streets or your cul-de-sac, but it would come to your house and it would come to the rooms that you live in. Um, uh, Famous 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm going to modernize this a little bit, but he says good news is always proportional to the situation that you find yourself in. So uh, he says most of us tend to view the good news of Jesus kind of like a a friend that notices that we were going to maybe mail a Christmas card out, make it seasonal, right? And we forgot to put the postage on it and 
the friend says, hey, I noticed you didn't put any postage on your stamp or on your mail. And so I, I took care of that. So that's one kind of good news, right? That's a little bit of relief. But he said, imagine this, like you are completely bankrupt. You are behind on all of your bills, your mortgage, and your house is about to be foreclosed on. And your friend steps in and he pays the remainder of your mortgage. I mean, those are two different ways to see good news. And for most of us, if we're honest and we, um, you know, if we kind of bring out our, our acceptable church sins, like we can apply hope there. But what God wants to do is open up our hearts to be able to see the, the things that really plague us. The things where we're most afraid. The things that we don't like to admit, even to ourselves. The things that we are afraid to even speak to God about. And the first thing that we're going to see in this passage is that Christmas means that God is declaring war on fear and uncertainty. Um, You may not recognize these names, but the people of uh, Zebulon and Nephtali, um, these were a a group of people that were in anguish, right? You may not understand, like, Israeli geography, but you do understand being in need. You do understand being in anguish. And what makes this passage particularly encouraging to me, and and I'm speaking as someone that is trying to live in the good of this, not someone that has arrived. But what this passage says is, there's good news for people that go through the same kinds of trials over and over again, right? There's, there's a difference between like walking from one trial to another, right? And those be different things. But there is something that happens in our hearts when you kind of go through the same thing over and over, over again, right? You keep suffering in the same way. Or you keep battling with the same sins, the same fears, the same anxieties over and over. Well, that's the context into which God speaks this good news. Because there's two ways you can go when you go through the same things over and over again. I mean, you can like just develop callousness, right? And you can just begin to go through the motions. Or you can let suffering expose you and let suffering bring you to see your need for a Savior. You can either be desperate or jaded when you come into contact with the darkness of your own heart and the darkness that exists in the world. So, the good news of this passage is God wants to speak His peace into the places that you fear the most. The places that you fear in your circumstances, the places that you fear in your own heart. So where are you fearful this morning? Not in a general way, but very specifically. That's where God wants to meet you. The deepest darkness of your soul. That's where he wants to encourage you with the truth of Isaiah chapter 9. So what do I mean that God has declared war on fear and uncertainty? Zebulun and Nephtali, these are like the two northernmost territories in Israel. And so... 
what would happen is that every time that an army would invade Israel, these were the two places that got hit the hardest, right? They saw uh, the most carnage, the most bloodshed. So every time an army would come through, this place would totally get wiped out. So they would go through, just like I said, the same things over and over again. It would be very much like, I mean, you know, ISIS is in the news all the time, but it would be like for us hearing that ISIS has set up camp in Memphis and is making its way towards Jonesboro. I mean, that's the the kind of situation that is taking place in Isaiah chapter 9. And when you kind of go through that kind of suffering over and over again, it makes you ask some questions fundamentally about yourself. Like, you begin to think, what's wrong with me? Is what I'm going through, is this my fault? Like, is this God's judgment? Is this God's discipline on my life? Right? You ask those kinds of questions. Then you also begin to ask questions about God. Like, is God really there? Is he involved? Does he care? The holidays always give me a chance to just kind of reflect a little bit. And this week I pulled out the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, but they were children's books written by C.S. Lewis, and The Last Battle probably is my favorite. Um, and it tells the story, really, of the end of Narnia, to where it's, it's coming to an end, and the new creation is coming, and there's one character I think that you're meant to identify with in that story, and his name is King Tyrion. He is a young king who is about 25 years old, but he's a good king. Like, and he tries to rule rightly. But in the midst of his rule, like, his world begins to crumble. Like, there's all kinds of suffering going on in his kingdom. And to make things worse, um, it sounds like Aslan, who is the Christ figure in this story, is back in Narnia. But the thing that is happening, actually, is there is an imposter. There's someone that's pretending to be Aslan. And in the midst of all that, he's doing evil and calling it good. And this causes a a real crisis in the soul of Tyrion. And I think it gets to the heart of all of our fears. He says this. He says, he said, would it not be better to be dead than to have this horrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed and longed for. So our greatest fear, like if we're honest, is, is not that God doesn't exist, but it's that he's there and that he doesn't care. That he's actively watching us go through suffering, that he's actively watching us go through trials, that he's actively watching us battle the same sins over and over again, but he's indifferent to us, right? I mean, if we break it down, that is our deepest, darkest fear is that God is there and he does not care. But Isaiah chapter 9 is the loudest possible statement that God wants to speak hope and faith and love and peace into the things that you are most afraid of. Look at the second half of verse 1. It says, In the latter time he made glorious the way of the sea, the lands beyond Jordan, Galilee of nations. So, 
I told you these were a group of people that were suffering, that the armies would march right over and would conquer them. But when it came time for a Savior to appear, maybe if you've read the New Testament, you would see that Galilee, right? This is that area of Israel. They were the first people to see the glory of the Savior. And so how I think that can meet us where we are is the people that suffer the most get the first glimpse of glory, right? I mean, there's no such thing as wasted pain that's going on in your life here this morning. God is not somehow withdrawn from you or hiding from you. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the backdrop of suffering, it's a place where he wants to reveal glory and hope and mercy to you. So where is that place that you need him to reveal himself? He's not far away. And what I really love about this passage, look at verse 2. He makes a difference between darkness and deep darkness. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So, how many of you know the difference between darkness and deep darkness? Right? This passage is meant to give you hope in the midst of deep darkness. The word really here is the word for calamity. It's something that you can't get yourself out of. That's the place that God wants to speak good news to you here this morning. The deep darkness, like the darkness that no one knows about, the darkness of depression, right? One of the most painful things about depression is you search for answers and you try to find a way out and there is no way out. And it's just a big deal just to be able to get out of bed in the morning. God wants to speak hope into that kind of darkness. To marriages that are here this morning that are just hanging on, like by a threat, that kind of deep darkness God wants to speak hope into, right? Families that are having problems staying together. He wants to speak hope into that kind of deep darkness. Maybe you're here and you're in financial ruin, right? I mean, you are just mounting debt up to your eyeballs, and if God doesn't do something, you're going under. He wants to speak hope into that kind of darkness, Every year, as the, the year comes to a close for me, it's, it's, it's always real and it's always personal because um, we have to finish out this year, but part of my job and part of my calling is to look forward to the next year. So there's a certain amount of reflection that goes on. And there was a, a point this year where I, I've really lived out verse 3 where it says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased it to joy. There's been moments of real joy. I've rejoiced at seeing God work, like it says right here, with the joy at the harvest. Like God, there's things that God has done in my life, and there's things that God has done in this church this year that can only be explained by Him. Right? And it says, and they are glad as when they divide the spoil. That's the the word of victory. Like there are battles that God fought on my behalf where I didn't have anything to do with them, and I got to rejoice in his victory. But there simultaneously were moments of this kind of deep darkness that I'm talking about. 
And I'm thinking about one day in particular, about the middle of the year, I broke down emotionally, like in my soul. I broke down to the point where I came home one night and my wife knew that something was going on in my heart. I was in the midst of really one of the most difficult pastoral situations that I've ever found myself in. And I came home late at night and she could see the look on my face and she hugged me and I just started to cry. Not just like, you know, man tears that are appropriate, like at a, you know, ODL or something like that. I mean, this was, (laughs) this was deep rooted sighing. There was something that broke deep inside of me because what I was facing at that moment was so much bigger than me. I told, I remember her holding me and I, I mean, I don't think I've cried like this since I was a kid. And I just said, if God doesn't fix this, if he doesn't do something like I'm finished. And I remember just at that moment after crying for a long time, feeling this freedom and this release of I'm not in control. Like I can't fix this. I I'm not gifted enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I can't change anybody's heart. And then I began to think there's hope because there's one who can. And slowly by slowly that situation got better. And that taught me the freedom of being at the end of your rope. And so I I think for many of us here this morning, it's okay to say, I can't handle this. I can't do this. I need a rescuer. I need a savior. God loves to deliver people from deep darkness. See, we can have confidence in the midst of our darkness because light shines in the darkness. The New Testament says it this way in the book of 1 John. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we can respond confidently in moments of fear and anxiety and worry because light has come. The light chases away the darkness, and that's why it's important for us to pause in the midst of Advent and say, I need the light because I'm surrounded by darkness, whether that's your own heart or circumstances that are out of your control. God wants to meet you right there. See, we, we can live confidently because we have received, as it says in the book of Hebrews, a kingdom that cannot be shaken and a king that rules in a way that no other king does. So, brings us to our second point, the empire of grace. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Listen to this kingdom and listen to this king and let his rule speak to your fear, your worry, and your anxiety. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, 
there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there's a couple things that I just want us to slow down and think about what this means for us. First of all, what you should see is the way that verse 7 ends. It says, it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do this. God is not indifferent to our story, right? He's passionate about entering into our darkness and bringing light. So, Let light shine wherever you are this morning that God has declared by sending his son that he is not passive in our story. And he's given us everything that we need to have faith and to have hope. But this hope is counterintuitive. Think about how these people would have received this. Right? I mean, there is an army that is knocking out their door. Right? We talked about ISIS being in Memphis. And what is the hope? In the midst of that army, a child, a baby, right? I mean, this is where the the wisdom of God confounds the foolishness of this world. This is counterintuitive. The hope of the whole world is a baby? Are you kidding? Right? No, but this baby, right, is God in the flesh. This baby is going to fulfill every promise that God has ever made to his people. This child is given to us to bring us hope and life. And that is what Advent is all about. So a a child is born. This child is going to be the eternal universal king. In the midst of a world that is filled with darkness and our hearts that are filled with darkness... We have the hope of being ruled by a different kind of king. And our hope is that this God not only is there, but he cares. And he actually has the power to bring about all that he has promised to bring. So listen to these terms of power. He is the mighty God. It's so easy to say, but this is, <laughs> this is a term of extreme strength. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. No other religion on earth identifies God as Father. This is a Father that has no beginning. This is a Father that has no end. This is a God that owns all resources and has every ability to act in your circumstances and in your life. He is the everlasting father. And then I love that phrase, the the word, the Lord of hosts. Um, Just recently, I've never really even thought about that. That just kind of sounded like this distant term, but really he's talking about the hosts of heaven, the myriads and myriads of angels that kind of worship around his throne. Basically what God is saying is I am the God of all of the armies of heaven and they are pointed squarely at my people for their good. That's what Christmas is about. He has every ounce of power to bring about all of his promises, but he does it in a way that brings us peace, right? He is the prince of peace. He is personal. He is real. So he comes clothed, not in 
as a king that demands our worship, but as a king who serves, as a king who washes our feet. You can see the contrast between both of these things. The king that rules and the king that serves and lays down his life. That term, the prince of peace. We're talking about universal peace that will happen one day. There also is personal peace, right? Relational intimacy with God to know that he's not against you, but he's for you. That word also means that he wants to bring wholeness to your story. God is in the process of making our hearts and our stories new. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Lord of hosts. And then, I just love this phrase. This is what jumped out at me as I prepared this. He is the wonderful counselor. That means not only is he near and that he cares, and not only is he powerful, but he's wise enough to rule over us. Now, we oftentimes like kick against the goads in our own stories, and there's parts of our stories that all of us would like to erase or move to the side. But what he's saying here is something that we've said here in the past is that everything that he does in our lives, he's going to use for good. And everything he does in our lives is good and it's right and it's perfect. It's hard to believe that, especially in the dark parts of our story. But what God wants to do is to speak peace. Because there's going to come a day when we are with him face to face and we're going to see the end from the beginning and we're going to say wonderful counselor mighty God prince of peace and we wouldn't change a thing this is the empire of grace Ray Ortland says this in his commentary on Isaiah he says that's where we got the title for this series the empire of grace will forever expand if we will live by faith in him now Accepting his weakness as our strength and his folly as our wisdom, we will be there to enjoy his triumph forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come one moment when we will say this is the limit. He can... He can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No, the finite will experience the ever more wonderfully, the infinite. And every new moment will be better than the last. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we have this advent of this king who has an empire of grace. And his rule and his reign in our hearts will ever increase and will ever expand. So whatever you're going through right now is not the end of the story. God's promise is, I am not only going to save you, but I am going to keep you and I am going to bring you home until we have this wave after wave after wave of God's mercy and his grace in our lives. So how do we respond to this king of grace? How do we respond to this advent of the King. We worship. We marvel. We say collectively as His people, rule over us. Rule over our fears. Rule over our dysfunction. Rule over our brokenness. 
rule over everything that keeps us from seeing you as you are. We're going to collectively cast all of our fears and anxieties on you because you actually care for us and you prove that by taking on flesh. So we want to do that. We want to come under the rule of this gracious king and allow him to bring peace to our lives and healing to our stories. And we want to just be this group of people, not only that receive this mercy, but in the midst of the world that's full of darkness, right? That we're able to offer something markedly different. The, the, the power of the New Testament church and the early church is, is not that they did not endure hardship, but the way that they endured hardship was by pointing to a hope that was beyond themselves. So as we think about all that we have received here in this Advent season. I mean, there's a, there's a real opportunity for us to offer hope and life and peace to the world in the name of King Jesus. So we want to cast our fears on Him, and we want to give hope to the hopeless. Let's pray. Father, thank You for your graciousness to us. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you deeply care uh, personally about our stories and where we are. Um, I pray that you would bring real peace in the midst of the fears and anxieties that we live with. I pray that you would unearth the source of those fears and that you would minister healing even as we celebrate communion here, that, that grace would be real and peace would be experiential. And that we would know the love of God that passes all understanding and His peace. Father, speak your love over your people as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.